Republicans have gotten the majority and they're out to punish. And censure has not traditionally been a tool that you use to punish people. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, June 20th, and today I'm joined by Puck's newest contributor, one of Capitol Hill's finest reporters and a longtime friend of mine, Abby Livingston, to talk about the possible censure of Congressman Adam Schiff, driven by MAGA forces in the House Republican Caucus, who want retribution for Schiff's investigations into Donald Trump. As Abby explains, the censure push is a big departure from past ones and a sign of how the punishment has now become completely political in the age of Trump. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com dot me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep you're creating a better life happy tuesday everybody welcome to the powers that be very special guest i would say friend of the pod but more just like friend of me abby livingston puck's newest contributor is joining us she is a veteran capitol hill reporter who's going to be serving up the dish from Congress for us. Abby, welcome to Puck, and thanks for being on this humble podcast. Hi, Peter. I'm so glad to be here, and I'm glad to be reunited with you as a colleague because we are CNN people. We are. Uh, and actually, later in the in the episode, I want to talk to you a little bit more about your career and our shared history. Shout out to all of our mutual friends, Shel Giacconi, John King, Annie Beneke out there somewhere. We've uh, been pals for a long time, but I want to talk to you first and foremost, about what's going on with this like censure motion on Capitol Hill. Uh, you know, this is something that is like 
I see a lot about on Twitter. It's not something you hear normal people necessarily talking about very much, but Anna Paulina Luna, freshman member of Congress, Republican, very MAGA. I met her a long time ago at like a Turning Point USA conference. She is trying to censure Adam Schiff, who used to be the chair of the House Intelligence Committee, no longer, obviously, now running for set in California. What is this censure about? Like, what did he do wrong in the eyes of Anna Polina Luna and the House Republican Caucus? Or is this just like attention grabbing partisanship, fundraising, blah, blah, blah? All of the above. So I just want to kind of explain censure for a second. Out of the three punishments Congress can dole out to themselves, this is number two. It comes after reprimand, but before expulsion. And there were not the votes to expel Adam Schiff because it takes a two-third majority. And it's basically a public shaming exercise. And his sin is having lied to the American people, quote unquote, which is the Republicans are arguing over the Russia investigation when Schiff was the lead Democrat on the House Intel Committee and for the first impeachment of Donald Trump involving Ukraine. So this is Republicans have gotten the majority and they're out to punish. And censure has not traditionally been a tool that you use to punish people. Typically, it's getting kicked off committees. They've already done that with Schiff and Intel. And so now they're going for more. And it failed last week, mostly because there was a $16 million fine tacked onto the censure that really concerned a lot of members of Congress on both sides of the aisle. I want to ask you more about that fine. Are there recent examples we can point people to of censures, be they bipartisan or not, in Congress? Yeah. The first time I ever heard of this term was when Bill Clinton was being impeached. It was not used, but it was a considered a secondary option for uh, short of impeachment. The one I remember most clearly, there's a legendary photographer on Capitol Hill named Tom Williams. He has this mm -hmm. photo at my old news organization, Roll Call, of Congressman named Charlie Rangel of Harlem after he was censured for some questionable financial practices. And Rangel basically went to the well of this the house and was shamed. And this photo of him after, this is a proud man. And he was really, uh, his cheeks were puffed out and his eyes were bulging. And you could tell it was not a pleasant experience. And this is a prized photo in Roll Call history. <laughs> and the more recently one is Paul Gosar a few years ago put up a questionable video involving Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And so the Democratic majority censured him. And so this has become a tool, as some members have talked to me about, it's, it's almost like the Senate where these judicial appointments, each side, once they got the majority, pushed harder and pushed the boundaries of how to get through these judicial appointments and lowering the threshold. The same thing's happening on the House side, but it's going after you personally mm -hmm. as a member if you don't like them. And so each side ratchets it up a little bit more each time there's a majority change. And that's basically what's happening now because these perceived sins happened years ago. But the general sense I get among Democrats is they don't really take this seriously. And it's not a flippant way I'm describing it, but this is just not what you use censure for. But they're pretty steamed about it, particularly the $16 million. You know, I just literally, while you're talking about it, I forgot about the Wrangle thing. So this was in December of 2010. So it was like after the midterm wave that year, but before Republicans took control. And it was like a 333 to 79 vote. So like pretty much like a bipartisan censure of Wrangle. And for like really what seemed like legitimate financial improprieties using his office improperly. But what you're saying is like this stuff has just become political. That's 13 years ago. This seems a little more silly. Yes. Although, it, I, you know, I asked a Democrat 
is it proper to say, are you all rolling your eyes at this? And the Democrat took offense to that, that that was too unserious of a response because they do find it problematic. They just don't find the charges to be serious. And so it will be brought up again this week, most likely, and they're going to take off the $16 million fine and it might actually get through. And so Adam, we may see the spectacle of Adam Schiff standing in the well of the House literally having the Riot Act read to him, which may not be the worst thing that has ever happened to Adam Schiff politically. <laughs> what is the worst thing that's happened to Adam Schiff politically? <laughs> well, no, I d didn't mean to imply that, but that he is <laughs> running for Senate in a very competitive exactly. race. But yes, I've written that too. So California is the most expensive state to run a statewide campaign, the most expensive media markets. And this is a top two Democratic primary. It's going to be a protracted race. Schiff seems to have taken this personally in some of his responses, but there's also the fundraising link. And so I'm going to be very curious to read his campaign finance report at the end of this mm -hmm. quarter and see how well he's done from this moment until the end of the quarter. Yeah, totally. I'm not in Schiff's district. I live out in LA. I'm in Ted Lieu's district, but I'm on so many direct mail lists from like previous owners of my house, I guess. And I get a ton of like Adam Schiff mail, despite not being on his list or ever signing up for it. And like beyond the online fundraising aspect of this, like I assume we're going to get like tons of direct mail pieces being like, I'm under attack by extreme MAGA Trump Republicans. Can you send me 10 bucks or whatever? But the $16 million fine thing and by the way, this is why I like talking to you because I never really actually covered Congress. I was just a campaign <laughs> person. Where did that come from? Did Anna Polina Luna just like pull up a number? Is it typical for people who get censured in Congress to pay fines? And why would he pay a fine <laughs> for allegedly like misusing his perch on the intelligence committee to go after Trump? Like, where does that punishment fit the, the crime in theory? Well, it's kind of a hard logic to follow because the number 16 million is her office's calculation of half the cost of the Mueller investigation, which was part of the Department of Justice, which is part of the executive branch. Hmm. There was a House intelligence investigation into the Russian interference. I believe at the time it concluded Democrats were still in the minority, but basically it's they don't like Adam Schiff. And it should also be noted that the Mueller investigation, the general thesis of it was there's not enough evidence to show direct wrongdoing with the president, but there was a huge amount of obstruction of justice, which made that problematic. Uh -huh. I mean, there's such a conservative line that the Mueller report cleared Trump, and I, that was not my interpretation after reading 800 pages of it. Gotcha. Okay. And so Anna Polina Luna, who's offering the censure, she's saying she's going to keep pressing for it, right? Like there's going to be another round of voting because some Republicans oppose this. Correct. So early on, 20 Republicans voted with the Democrats to put this down and a few more voted present. It was generally the institutionalists. And these are like committee chairmen who've been around mm -hmm. for 40 years. They took issue with the sequence of how she was going about this. It was all very much like this is not how we do this. They were quick to say, we don't like Adam Schiff, but we don't want this method to be turned around and used against us. But what is also happening is Kevin McCarthy's having a really hard time governing and getting votes to happen. Votes have been canceled. Members have been sent home. And when things like that happen and time on the floor is being used on this, Republicans are not advancing conservative policy. Hmm. We hear about the same Taliban 20 members who are causing a ruckus, but there's a lot more Republicans and you can just feel the temperature rising within the conference of wasting time and not spending it on policy. And so this is uh -huh. just an increasingly, it, it feels almost like a hangover from the debt deal where Kevin McCarthy has been heavily criticized by the conservative right. Yeah. And also, it also feels like Luna, she's of the 
you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, kind of ilk, like a rabble-rousing, attention-seeking MAGA conservative. In her previous life, she feels like a MAGA influencer. So she's just like, you know, she gets the attention economy here, but hasn't yet found a thing, you know? Like, she's she's obviously in that world, but she hasn't made a name for herself on any given topic, issue, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. She wasn't like on camera screaming at Joe Biden (laughs) during the State of the Union address, for example. But this gives her a thing to do and talk about. And by going after Shifty Shift, you know, she's doing something that is getting the direct attention of Donald Trump. And that's important. Well, I'll be frank. I've taken a break from covering Congress for a few months. And so I don't know all the freshmen, but I know a lot of them. Mm -hmm. I never heard of her before this. I looked her up and on her bio, she's very proud that Charlie Kirk of Turning Point USA is one of the people who helped lead her to politics. Uh Every cycle, the Republican House GOP conference elects several more of these people, and they're starting to hit a critical mass within their conference of real influence. And so every time there's a retirement of a member who's, I'm sick of this, I can't do this anymore, they are almost always replaced by this type of figure. So it's going to be a rather large caucus within this conference. Fascinating stuff. Uh, Summer drama. Thanks for paying attention to it when some of us are not. (laughs) I want to take a quick break, Abby. And when we come back, I want to talk about your career and what it's like covering Capitol Hill. Hey, Powers That Be listeners. I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right. I found that on Etsy. It's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome back to the powers that be, everyone. I'm joined by Puck's newest contributor, Abby Livingston, Texas native, by the way. 
Abby, you've had like a, a career that I really respect in some ways because it's, it's sort of like mine. It's like you worked in TV, but you were interested in, in sort of more nitty gritty political reporting. You worked for Roll Call, Meet the Press, CNN, Texas Tribune most recently, which I love and respect a lot. Over the years, th- this is the other thing we have in common. I feel like we we were in Washington, certainly in like the Tea Party years, the Obama years, and those were some heated times on Capitol Hill. Just like as a journalist, I feel like things have changed a lot. Uh, the aforementioned Anna Polina Luna is a great example. She really doesn't give a shit about talking to reporters from the mainstream press. And her press secretary doesn't really, even though these people like attention in certain ways. Is it just harder up there for reporters? Is it just generally more toxic for everybody? What do you notice that's changed, I guess, even over the last 10 years? Well, and to be clear, I currently live in New York City, but I have a phone, and so I'm I'm in touch with the Hill. But I can tell you it's radically changed. I mean, first and foremost, I think it's forgotten, but the insurrection affected real human beings. And so I was not there that day. I work for a smaller news organization, and so we all made deals with the bigger news organizations that they would share their reporting and we would keep our germs out. So I was actually in Texas during the insurrection. But there's a lot of reporters walking around who have quite a bit of trauma from that day. And um, hmm. and we're surrounded by members who don't even treat it as a real thing. You know, I mean, even though they they themselves thought their lives were in danger. And so it has gotten more hostile. But at the same time, members still like to get attention. Sometimes some of the delegation members, and when I covered Texas, started to stop talking to the Texas Tribune. But generally, they do still like attention and like reporters. But I think hmm. the biggest change I've seen is how there was just no outlet 15 years ago for the backbenchers, kind of the kooks and the crazies. And they just never garnered that much attention, except maybe like a silly clip on CNN at night. Yeah, They are now stage front. And I think it's really hard for the average American to discern between who is a serious, influential member of Congress who is passing laws that will affect their daily lives versus these people who are on TV all the time. And so that's kind of what I try to do as a reporter and why I'm very excited to be at Puck. So, you know, just if you're a reporter walking around the halls of Congress and hanging out by the subway and all that stuff, there are lots of reporters that you and I both know who have been there for longer than 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. And like, I'm not saying this in a critical way, but a lot of them are institutionalists too. You know, like they think things are supposed to work a certain way and the partisanship and media environment has shifted, mutated, splintered, gotten worse maybe in recent years. And I'm like, Thinking about those people in January 6th, like it just must have been a shock to the system for just journalists who one reason I like almost was like afraid to cover Capitol back in the day is because it seemed like kind of opaque and hard to figure out. There's all these like Byzantine rules about where you can walk as a reporter and who you can film and like when you can film and you you have to stop at the elevators, whatever. And it always felt the reporters who covered the Hill were maybe a little protective of its institutions and its, you know, informal bylaws. Are they like shocked out of that at this point? I think to an extent, I think we we, we do self-police in the sense of when Trump first came into office, every news organization in America sent 10 reporters. So there were a bunch of new people who didn't know how things worked and were kind of running around chasing down 90 year old senators. And, you know, we had to kind of remind people that a broken hip is not worth a quote on your tape recorder. <laughs> and so it's like little things like that. But I just think it's just generally it is still um 
you know, there is still some rapport. I think there are still the greats. I think Carl Hulse of the New York Times and Paul Kane of the Washington Post uh-huh. are considered the most revered reporters on the Hill. And I just generally, um, whenever I've had questions about where to stand and where I can take photos, I just sort of look around and see what the other reporters are doing and go with the flow. But I actually think it's the most fun place in Washington to report because the White House is so regimented. They hold on to their news so tightly, but they are required to notify Congress. And so you can run down to the Hill and it's like high school in the hallways and start picking up stuff. And that was, I worked in Tim Russert's NBC Washington Bureau and that was the number one thing he stressed was you need to spend time on Capitol Hill, even though the uh-huh. White House is what gets you on the evening news. Totally. And like the the sourcing is so fun on the Hill too, because it's, it's not, sometimes in politics, again, in my world campaigns, like my sources the best ones, sometimes they were the candidates and the governors and the senators, but usually it was like the consultants and different people and like state party organizations, whatever. But on the Hill, like your sources can just be (laughs) the actual member of Congress and they'll be like, hey, Abby, got something for you. And they'll just text you. And like, that's that's kind of fun. It's fun. It's I think it's also important for reporters and members to look each other in the eye. I just think that's one of the most important things of journalism. Yeah. I agree. I totally agree. So last thing, Abby, what what drew you to Puck? Like, why Puck? Well, I have to say I have become an avid reader and podcast listener. Um, it really started with Julia Ioffe's reporting after uh, the Russian invasion. Mm-hmm. And then it just opened me up to all of these other reporters who I followed for years and are now behind the subscription wall. And I have to say it's I mean, I'm not just saying it because I work there, but it's a subscription I enjoy paying for because it's just so smart and so thoughtful and everything written has, everybody's taken a breath and thought things through before they started typing. And it, there's a wisdom in the reporting that I just I very much admire and hope to aspire to. I totally agree. All of our reporters are like some of the best on their beats. You are one of those people on, on the Hill, obviously. And yeah, I mean, it's it's deliberate, it's considered, it's smart. It reeks of <laughs> perspective and expertise and we're not just chasing metrics and clicks, you know, everything I think we write is credible. We say the quiet part out loud, the stuff you hear in the green rooms, and you're one of those people. So I'm glad you're joining us. Thank you for coming on The Powers That Be. I'm glad to be here. And thank you for having me, Peter. You got it. Thanks, Abby. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.